Welcome to the Making Sense of Tech Law podcast. The past summer has maybe challenged some of your assumptions about regulating technology. Where before you thought that robots ought to be free, after having spent six months in lockdown, homeworking and corona anxiety, and having been reduced to a mindless, timeless machine, you may see now the value of the regulation of a nine-to-five, a boss, and the extrinsic motivation of office competition to function at your best, leading you now to believe that robots require tight regulatory constraints. Maybe you will also have considered how technology might intersect with the topic of race. After all, this summer has been the summer of Black Lives Matter. It has raised so many important questions that society, including the legal profession, must grapple with regarding its inclusivity of black people. One particularly interesting tech law-related point on this is the use of AI and big data in policing, also known as predictive policing, which has come under a lot of scrutiny since the Black Lives Matter movement drew attention to the ways in which this technology can be employed to exacerbate discrimination and racism. To discuss the topic of predictive policing, it's a pleasure to welcome Jacob Turner. Jacob was educated at Oxford and then at Harvard, and his seminal book, Robot Rules is really one which I would recommend to all tech law students. He's a former solicitor advocate, called to the bar in 2016, and then joined Fountain Court Chambers in 2018. And Jacob, to begin, uh, I just wondered if you might introduce us to the concept of predictive policing. What is its impact, and is it fair to say it was as big a development as DNA was back in the 1980s for solving crimes? Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. The development of predicting, predictive policing, I think, is hugely significant because until now, all of the meaningful decisions about the use of police resources, whose movements to interfere with, who to arrest, who to charge, have been made by humans. Now, sometimes there's been assistance from technology in gathering evidence and so on and so forth. But ultimately, the meaningful, the important decisions as to what to do with that evidence have all been made by humans. With predictive policing, you have potentially extremely important, very difficult and very nuanced decisions, which are being made by machines. Now, there isn't necessarily and especially not at the moment, a complete distinction between decisions made on the one hand by computers and decisions made on the other hand by humans. What tends to happen in the way that most police forces use technologies today is that the technology will make a recommendation to a human and then a human will have the final say. So you do still have what's known as a human in the loop. There are a couple of issues with this. Firstly, errors can arise from having humans in the loop and there may be a drive to try to reduce those errors by um, reducing the amount of human involvement. Now of course with computers you can you, you can introduce other and different errors so it doesn't necessarily mean there'll be no errors. The other issue is that even if there is a human in the loop you may have a situation where because the human believes and they may do so with good reason that the computer is very accurate they may not really exercise a great deal of 
control or constraint over the computer. So instead, they're really just nodding through everything that the computer does. Do you have do you have any concrete examples of where specifically this this whole sort of debate plays out? Certainly, and several police forces are already using these type of tools. There's one called the Heart Tool, which is being used by a police force in the UK and has been subject to quite a lot of controversy from civil liberties groups, uh, groups like Big Brother Watch uh, and Amnesty uh, have commented on the use of this tool, um, as, as well as uh, um, organisations like the uh, Sisters Regulation Authority and the Law Society. Um, so, so professional organisations and regulators have considered the, the use of these types of tools as well. So certainly in the UK they're being used, but uh, going wider than the UK, in, in many other countries, particularly in China, there are numerous uses of these types of um, predictive uh, policing and population control technologies most notably uh, with the Uyghur population in Western China, where these technologies are reported to have been uh, fairly, fairly widely used, albeit that there is less transparency over what goes on in China as opposed to what happens in the UK. It's really interesting that you mentioned China there. I, just, I also wonder, do you think that there's a certain stigmatization of any kind of predictive policing techniques just because of the extreme examples that we see abroad? I think there's a, a, a combination of feelings which the, the use of predictive policing technologies elicits. It depends to some extent on the level of information which is provided to the general public about these technologies. And the psychological study is not necessarily linked to predictive policing, but linked to a lot of new technologies tend to show that the more information people are given prior to being asked the question, do you agree with it, are you scared of it, um, that that can change the way that they, they answer. So I think it, 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 in general, of course, it's, it's difficult to give a broad view on what a given population will, will say about a, uh, a technology. But I, th I think there certainly is a degree of distrust um, amongst the public. And, and that distrust is... Uh, likely to be influenced, at least in part, by the um, dystopic um, presentations that one sees of these types of technologies in science fiction, films like Minority Report, where one had essentially a predictive pol policing technology being used, and it made mistakes with uh, potentially very serious consequences. So those kinds of fears um, are certainly things that the population is alive to. But I think that this is something which shifts over time and the views that people have of a certain technology today may well not be the same views as they would have in five years. They also differ between countries. Some populations are much more comfortable with these types of technologies being used. For example, in Asia, it tends to be the case that populations are more comfortable with the technology being used, whereas in uh, Western Europe, um, people are less comfortable with these technologies. You pick up there on the, the notion that information almost makes it easier to trust these algorithms and these decisions. But as we both know, decisions are becoming so much more complex and algorithms are becoming so much more complex, so much harder to communicate. 
is this going to actually become more of a problem in the future? The complexity of decisions is a really interesting issue when it comes to artificial intelligence. The term artificial intelligence, when I use it, I, I use it to describe autonomous technology. That's to say technology which can take decisions that haven't been explicitly pre-programmed into it by humans. So machine learning technology and all of its variants, reinforcement learning, deep learning, and so on, would fall within that. The essence of these technologies and a lot of the benefit comes from the fact that they can do things that humans can't, that their own programmers didn't decide. This has a flip side, which is that the technologies are often what's known as black boxes, which is to say that it can be very difficult to describe in any meaningful or easily understandable terms to a human why the technology has come to a particular decision. And that lack of scrutability for these new systems is certainly a challenge. And it is one that regulators have been focusing on to a significant extent, particularly in the last year. Um, and in fact, just last month, the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK and the Alan Turing Institute published guidance on explainability for AI systems, which acknowledge that you can't necessarily explain all AI systems in a series of logical steps in the way that you could do for a traditional computer program where all of those logical steps are fixed from the outset and they don't change. Um, th there are now a number of techniques, both algorithmic and in terms of governance structures, which can be used to explain or provide a, at least a proxy for an explanation for technologies. And I think these types of um, explainability techniques are going to, in the future, be increasingly applied when AI is used in, uh, in law enforcement in order that it complies with, with best practices and is able to explain, for example, why person A was recommended to be arrested, whereas person B was not. And in terms of those governance structures, what do you think we might be looking at? Is it going to be hard law, uh, legislation, or is it going to be more focused on guidelines and forms of soft law regulations and things like that? In my view, a combination of hard and soft law is uh, the preferred route for this type of situation where you have a general aim, which is fairly widely acknowledged that uh, an explanation for a decision is a helpful thing. Um, but the way of reaching that uh, generally agreed principle is uncertain and will vary from context to context. Um, in some scenarios, you, you may need far less of an explanation than in other ones. So, for example, uh, in medical decision making, people are likely to be probably more concerned. And in fact, there are empirical studies which show this, that pe people are people tend to want the right diagnosis. They don't really care about how a system has reached that diagnosis, so long as they're told you do or you don't have cancer, for example. That, that's the really important thing. Whereas for other types of decision, say uh, a recruitment decision, whether somebody's offered a job or not, people tend to be more concerned about the reasons why they were or weren't, particularly weren't, offered a job. 
um, than necessarily the accuracy of the system or the system being the best possible um, uh, uh, recruitment tool that can be that can be used. So it will it, it will vary on the context, and for that reason, having a uh, a single law is not necessarily that helpful because a law is very difficult to um, uh, to adapt to to different scenarios. So having a a general principle set by law and then um, guidance which can be used in uh, and, and indeed can be updated as the, as the technology develops is an effective balance um, between using technology to its uh, full potential but also maintaining society's key values including explanations so it's about kind of avoiding broad brush one type one size fits all solutions and almost going sector by sector in terms of what we what we might be looking at Exactly. I mean, not necessarily sector by sector, because within each sector, there may be different types of uh, AI being used and different decisions being made. But certainly a contextual approach, um, which looks at exactly the kind of decision, exactly the types of people about whom a decision is being made. It may be that decisions aren't being made about people at all, in which case far less of an explanation is going to be needed, let's say, if, if AI is being used to optimize a, uh, a factory. You, you don't necessarily need to provide anything like the type of explanations as you would for um, making a recruitment decision or, or uh, any other kind of important decision about a person. Um, so in, in short, yes, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but it, it, it may also not be necessarily a sector-by-sector. Sector. And is there also public and private divide in the approaches to issuing guidelines and regulations is it perhaps harder to regulate the private sector for instance yes certainly the uh, there is in fact a a good example of this in, in the us there is a program called the compass tool which is used by some police forces to make assessments of how likely it is that a particular person who's been arrested and has committed a crime is going to re-offend. And this is very important in determining the length of their sentence and whether they are eligible for parole after a certain amount of time. And uh, there was a challenge in Wisconsin to the use of this, uh, this particular tool. And the company which um, produced the tool said well we can't tell you how exactly the tool makes its decision because that is a commercially sensitive secret and so we don't want to release that to the court and the, the court perhaps surprisingly from at least a, a, an English or ECHR perspective ruled in favour of the company or at least ruled in favour of the police force which wanted to to use this tool and said that the company didn't have to divulge those commercial secrets. So, so, so there is certainly a tension between revealing one's commercial secrets um, for, for profit reasons and the type of scrutiny and accountability which we might otherwise expect of important decisions. It is also worth bearing in mind that commercial profits aren't the only reason that one would want to protect the way this algorithm functions and not reveal everything. For some algorithms, you want to make sure that people don't game the system, they, that they don't find workarounds. So, for example, in 
anti-money laundering software in banks to spot suspicious transactions, it would be uh, very problematic to release all of the information on the way those systems function, because then every fraudster would say, great, I, I can now work out how to circumvent those systems. So it's not only for nefarious reasons that we want to not necessarily provide full technical explanations of the, the functioning of these systems. How would you assess the balance that's been struck sort of at the European level or at the UK level in that sense? At the European level, the balance, at least as regards um, personal information, is very much in favour of explanations that, that there isn't a carve-out uh, available as things stand um, un under the general law, um, uh, uh, under the GDPR, for situations where companies wish to uh, protect their uh, sensitive information in this way. Now, part of the difficulty is that the GDPR's sections on the right to an explanation, Articles 13 to 15, haven't really been subject to any regulatory challenge, any court cases or things like that. So we don't know exactly how they're going to be interpreted, both by the national data regulators and ultimately by the European Court of Justice, which is uh, able to make final and binding decisions on that. And we may well be several years uh, away from that. And it has often been the case that when, even, even when something isn't there on the face of legislation, the European Court has been willing to um, insert a particular right or a particular interpretation which may not otherwise be obvious. So one example of this is the right to be forgotten, which now is part of the GDPR, but before the GDPR existed, the European Court said, we, we think that this right is obviously implicit in the law, even though the law didn't mention anything about it, uh, or, or at least directly on it previously. So everything I say about the interpretation of the GDPR and, in this regard and, and the balance it strikes needs to be given with that important caveat that we don't know what the courts will do. But um, in, in short answer, um, the, the types of carve-outs which are available in the US are unlikely to be or, or less likely to be available under the GDPR in terms of um, saying what, where the company is safe from, uh, from not providing this information. Moving away from legislation just for a, for a moment, there are also perhaps uh, non-legal solutions to holding, holding large companies or large decision-making bodies accountable. In particular, recently, there's been a lot of uh, refusal, in particular in the States, to provide facial recognition technology to law enforcement um, officers. But do you think that there's also a sense of uh, personal action that needs to that that will actually lead to a more effective regulation or is regulation right now sufficient individual actions by corporations or by um, particular um, uh, 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 organizations uh, is one way of constraining the use of facial recognition technology so uh, recently in um, in June, I think it, it was, um, IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft withdrew their uh, consent, at least they, they announced they were withdrawing their consent from their facial recognition technologies being used by police forces. And this was 
in large part in response to the uh, uh, Black Lives, Lives Matter protests and the increased scrutiny of uh, both the police and racial profiling. And there have for, for many years been serious concerns about the effectiveness of facial recognition um, with regards to certain ethnic minorities and, and, and indeed uh, with, with regards to, to women's faces as well. Um, and so, so this precautionary step that was uh, taken by these tech companies came after uh, several years of pressure um, and uh, wasn't something which they'd been willing to do previously. Now, that said, this is only three tech companies, obviously they're major companies, but there are many companies around the world which provide facial recognition technology, some of which is effective, some of which is, uh, is less effective. And of course it changes over time, the, the effectiveness, because the nature of machine learning is generally speaking, it gets better the more data that's fed into it, the more experience it has and, and the more tweaking this is done by, um, by, by the programmers and the data scientists. So, so the picture isn't static. And one of the uh, problematic features about, or at least unsatisfactory features uh, about this self-regulation uh, approach, which has been taken to some extent to date, is, is that it means that the situation um, is quite uncertain because police forces are not banned from using technology. It's just that they have some barriers to using particular uh, companies in order to provide that technology, which will mean that the police forces are still very much able to use facial recognition technology so long as there are no laws against it, which for the most part there aren't. Um, but they simply have to go to other providers and it may even be the case that the other providers' technology is actually less effective than Amazon or Microsoft's or IBM's. And so what you have is the police still using technology, but actually using a less good version of the technology than might have otherwise been available, were it not for a big high-profile company taking themselves out of the market. So uh, I, I, I think, in short, from a public protection perspective, um, it's of course open to these companies to say they're not going to supply the technology. That's that 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 is their commercial and uh, public relations choice. But it doesn't necessarily particularly aid society in protecting it from the the, the types of harms which may eventuate from the uh, facial recognition system being used. Do you think um, that that those harms being spoken about? in contemporary culture right now by the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, are there some regulatory avenues to address those concerns? We already have a lot of regulation on equality, on non-racial discrimination, and I think that can certainly be brought to bear on the way that the police use these technologies. Um, certainly there's no reason to think that uh, the police will be any less subject to equalities legislation um, it, when they're using these technologies than uh, they would be if uh, uh, the decisions were simply made by humans. So I don't think we need new law, I just think we need to um, think about how the existing law is going to be applied to and going to be uh, made effective 
for this new technology, which may well be better at avoiding discrimination in the long term than, than, than humans are. But we need to establish it and integrate it in a way which is most likely to achieve those aims. And just finally, as we bring our discussion of this, this topic kind of to a close, in your book, Robot Rules, you discuss the notion of legal personhood for AI. And I just wonder if that might contribute to this issue in some way. The idea of legal personhood as separate from natural personhood is something which we've had for thousands of years. The concept that there can be a human with rights and then a company, a corporation, some form of essentially fictional, imaginary body, which nonetheless is accorded legal rights, is nothing new. If we think of companies, um, that, that is the archetypal legal person. So Coca-Cola doesn't have a body, it doesn't have a soul, but it owns a huge amount of property, it owns um, both physical things, it owns intellectual property, it has a huge amount of cash. So these are all legal rights which are accorded to essentially a figment of our collective imagination. And Yuval Harari explains in his books exactly how important these collective fictions have been to society and to enabling people to work together. And the really important thing to remember about these collective fictions, whether they are rights, whether they're legal persons, uh, these, these things are all designed, they're all aimed essentially to aid humans. Uh, at the end of the day, the idea of creating corporations as separate from humans is not for the corporation's own benefit, ultimately, it's for human benefit. It's so the shareholders can benefit, it's so that the customers know that there's always a body they can, can go after if something goes wrong, it's so society can benefit. So it's important to give that introduction to the idea of potential legal personhood for some AI systems, because the natural knee-jerk reaction from many people is to say, well, that sounds crazy. Why would we give a computer rights? I don't give my, my telephone rights. I don't give my table rights. Why would I want to do that for a computer system? But there are, I think, some potentially good reasons for doing this. Giving some AI systems rights is not the only way of dealing with these issues, but I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the issues and explain why I think um, this could be a useful solution. Um, there are two main problems. Firstly, responsibility if AI causes harm. Generally speaking, responsibility for harm is always fixed on a legal person, whether it's a human or a corporation. You need to find something or someone who's made a decision which has led to harm. But what happens if the decision isn't made by a human, it's made by a, uh, a, an AI system? For example, if a self-driving car runs someone over, who's responsible? Is it the person who was sitting in the car? But they weren't controlling it. Is it the person who um, designed the car's AI? Well, maybe, but what if the AI just did something that, was, that wasn't predicted? What if it taught itself a particular driving technique which no one thought of? What if it reacted in some way to something which was surprising that couldn't have been predicted? So 
establishing who's responsible if AI causes harm can be very difficult. Um, the other flip side of that is if AI creates something, if AI writes a book, if AI designs a, a piece of art, which could be very valuable, if AI creates a new medicine, which AI is currently being used for to great effect, all of those things have an economic value and are traditionally protected by intellectual property rights. But intellectual property rights, as things stand, vest only in the creator, in the human who had the idea. So again, what happens if there is no human? What happens if it's the AI system which has the idea? So one solution, which I suggest in the book, to both the question of who's responsible if AI causes harm and who should be the owner if AI creates something good is to make the AI system both the responsible party and, and, and the owner, to treat the AI system like a corporation. So we don't give a corporation full human rights. We don't say a corporation can marry or vote, but we do say it can hold property, and we do say that the corporation can be sued. And essentially, I, I would suggest that one way of dealing with these difficult to new problems for AI systems is to give AI systems themselves these types of rights and liabilities so as to create certainty for those who are affected by their actions. But then how would that fit into something like facial recognition, which is uh, in particular in contemporary culture sort of seen as tainted by human biases inherently, how would, how would making an AI a legal person sort of uh, satisfy people's desire for a, a justice in that situation? There are lots of different ways of regulating and constraining AI use. And I'm not sure that legal personality is the most effective way of ensuring that uh, facial recognition software is accurate and doesn't suffer from um, improper biases. Um, but, but that said, I, th I think one could um, fit the uh, legal personality or potential legal personality of, of AI systems into a regulatory system by simply saying that these regulations apply equally to humans as they do to decisions made by AI. And, and in fact, we do actually have some gaps with the way that the current data protection system functions in terms of processing, which takes place by uh, artificially intelligent systems, automated processing. Um, uh, and some of the constraints which um, at the moment may not easily apply to AI systems but, but may nonetheless be very desirable. It is possible by creating legal personality for those systems you could more easily fit them into existing laws. But as I say, it's not, it's, it's not the only way of, of, of solving these issues. So I think that they are, uh, the question of legal personality and the question of um, appropriate controls on facial recognition are, are probably largely separate. Sure, sure. I think it's a, it's a really fascinating idea. It just makes me think about the notion of accountability, which is a, one of the sort of, um, you know, real guiding principles of the justice system that almost your, the remedy uh, is against a, a sort of person and how in, in particular with these sort of divisive issues, how would, le would legal personhood actually diminish people's sense of justice or uh, an effective remedy for their, for their complaint, perhaps about bias or about, you know, 
a decision that they're not happy with? I think within the word justice, there are a, a lot of concepts bound up in that. that. There are different types of justice. There is restorative justice, the idea that if somebody is harmed, they should be put into the position that they uh, would have been in had the harm not taken place. Now, with that, there's no reason why AI legal personality couldn't fit into restorative justice, because if the AI has assets, and if the AI has harmed someone, then those assets held by the AI could be used to restore the person who was harmed by the AI. There's the idea of corrective justice. Now, now this one is perhaps slightly more difficult for AI to uh, fit into in circumstances where um, if you're trying to influence future uh, behavior or if you're trying to um, uh, uh, change the way AI is acting uh, going forward. Um, but, but you could set up a system where the AI functions on the basis of um, rewards and negative uh, uh, sensations or uh, undesirable outcomes. And this is basically the way that reinforcement learning works. When, when you feed in data to AI, it gives an initial output. You then uh, uh, tell the AI that was a good answer or that was a bad answer. And the idea of um, the use of the justice system as a deterrent could well be fitted into AI actually reasonably easily, because that is the way that uh, at least certain AI systems function based on that type of feedback. Um, there's also the idea of retributive justice. That's where you, if somebody harms you, you harm them back. And uh, now we don't take this to extremes in in, in the uh, the UK and developed democracy. Well, in, in, in some developed democracies like the US, they have the death penalty still. So um, that's that's an extreme form of distributive justice. Oh, sorry, of, of retributive justice. Um, that's difficult to see exactly how that could apply to, to AI that has no um, uh, body to die, uh, no, no, no body to kick and no soul to die, um, then how can you effectively punish AI systems? But that, that said, we have corporations and corporations, companies fit perfectly well into our existing legal systems. Generally speaking, for the most part, we don't have corporate criminal liability. There are some, some exceptions to this. But nonetheless, we don't see the existence of companies as a barrier to people's notions of justice. And so for similar reasons, if we treat AI systems as more simply economic units, which are a bag of rights and legal obligations, I, I, I don't think that there are serious um, uh, barriers or, or challenges to, to, to the justice system, because they are, they, they really, at least in my conception, would be analogous to, to companies. One final question. In, in reality, do you think that's, um, do you think it's feasible perhaps when technology creates such sort of divisive issues to be able to, uh, to re reduce perhaps automated decision-making to, uh, to an economic unit or to a sort of lifeless thing is is it a contrast here between um, a very sort of personal thing and then a very uh, 
a perhaps a sort of quite a, quite a kind of cold conception of what is actually quite a divisive issue. It certainly is a divisive issue, and there are lots of values which go, go into what we consider to be a good or bad or appropriate or inappropriate decision. And as I've said, I don't think legal personality is the sole solution to all of these problems by any means. I, I think it's one potential solution, and probably not one which is likely to be uh, taken up in the near term, to be, to, to be frank. Um, to some of the questions of responsibility for harm and the rights over um, uh, the creations of AI. But, but these questions of ethics and the governance of AI, I, I think that is going to need a, a separate regulatory system, which can be done with or without AI legal personality. Um, so, so it's certainly a challenge. It's certainly something which society needs to engage in um, but, but it's something that's going to be need to, that, that will need to be done regardless of whether we also have AI legal personality. Jacob, thank you so much. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Just to sort of summarise, I suppose, for the listeners uh, listening, we've talked about what predictive policing is and how it's sort of developed as a, as a field before talking more broadly about issues of explainability of AI decision-making, in particular how such decisions are explained and exposed in the private sector, and then, then we moved into a discussion of whether a more fundamental rethink of how we view AI, such as whether they should be bestowed with legal personhood, and finally touching upon how this might work with facial recognition and discrimination, which are such emotive issues today. Jacob, to end our podcast today, I just wanted to ask you a couple of career questions. Firstly, you're a solicitor advocate, and I just wanted to ask a bit about your journey from training as a solicitor to then engaging with more advocacy-based work. I've always been very interested in international law, and so for that reason, when I uh, finished university, I joined an international law firm um, with a view to uh, travelling widely, to particularly working with uh, sovereign clients, um, and to uh, potentially working for, for a period in uh, different countries, uh, which I, I was very fortunate to be able to do. So at this law firm, I represented countries uh, including Russia, Iraq, Argentina and Greece, and, and I also spent six months working in their Hong Kong office. Um, I, I, I very, very much enjoyed my time doing that, and during this period I also uh, qualified as a solicitor advocate, which, uh, as listeners may be aware, uh, essentially entitles a solicitor to all of the rights which a barrister has to represent clients before various tribunals. Uh, I, I then moved over to the bar um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one was to be able to really develop my advocacy skills, because it, as a solicitor, the opportunities, particularly at a very large firm, are fairly restricted. One of the reasons for this is that at large firms, it's only economic for the firm to take on uh, very large clients, and, and, and those large clients will have disputes worth millions, hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of pounds. And 
as a junior to mid-level associate, there often aren't that many opportunities to do the advocacy on these cases. It's understandably, the clients will want somebody who's extremely experienced. Whereas being a barrister, even at a good commercial chambers, there are still loads of tiny little matters where you can really build up your experience, matters which are worth a couple of hundred pounds. And so where the clients are, are, are much more happy. In fact, they would only want to have a junior person arguing that case. So part of the reason was to be able to build up my own skill sets uh, by arguing cases, being on my feet myself. Uh, another part of my reason for, for moving over was the independence that being at the bar gives one. I mean, that there are some real advantages of being at a major law firm in terms of the network, the structure, the framing. But uh, being a barrister provides a huge amount of freedom to build your own career, to uh, to some extent, shape the, the kind of work you want to be involved in. Um, and this actually ties in with what we've been talking about today with the, the book that I wrote, Robot Rules. Um, because in this book, I talk about the global governance of AI and the way in which organizations can uh, orient themselves. And one of the slight difficulties with being at a law firm is that the law firm understandably had many clients which were big tech companies. and not that there's anything in my book which I think is averse to the tech companies, but nonetheless, um, it, it's a, uh, it, it's easier to write about these things from a position of total independence, from a position of total freedom. And be, being a barrister really enabled me to, uh, to, to do that, to have the freedom to uh, say what I wanted to say in, in the book, and then subsequently to be able to build a practice in advising these types of companies independently on the new challenges that they face from AI. And um, a final question, is there anything about your switch to the bar in terms of the skills that you're using? Is there anything that surprised you in terms of you've used something, you've used a skill of yours that you, you weren't sure that you'd use, but you, you are? You can say no as well. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the key things, and, and this is more a general point about advocacy, is the importance of listening really carefully and reading the room uh, in terms of not just getting up and giving a pre-prepared speech or asking a, a series of pre-prepared questions, but listening carefully, for example, if you're cross-examining someone, listening to their answers, and if they say something which is significant, maybe you'd want to, to build on it, or maybe you'd want to, to shut them off and uh, not let them elaborate on something which is unhelpful to, to your case. And likewise, with the court, uh, the court will often give um, indications as to whether it's hard enough on a point or whether it, it wants to hear more, whether, whether the court is troubled by something. So I, I, I think listening really is, uh, is the key thing from the advocacy perspective, which I think has, uh, is, is something that um, not, not necessarily surprised me, but, but I, I think it's, it's an incredibly important thing which perhaps isn't emphasised all that much otherwise. Jacob Turner, thank you very much. My pleasure.